Glad you could be here with us this morning. So glad you, you joined us today. Uh, it's a good morning. We are in a great text and a great series, one that I'm super excited about. A couple weeks ago, we began a series on the book of Exodus. Now, uh, many of us are familiar with individual stories throughout the Old Testament. Uh, the text that we'll be in today in Exodus 3 and 4, you will have heard likely before in your life, but... Um, None of that familiarity uh, robs this, these texts of just a wealth of information and opportunity and application in our lives. I love this story. We talked a couple weeks ago as we begin this series about the uh, flow into this story um, that uh, uh, the world had rebelled, uh, that people were living in chaos and in their own ways, but God, a God of mission, was committed to his people that God was not going to give up on his people. So he called a nobody, um, a a guy without a child um, in his life, a man named Abram. And he said, Abram, I'm going to make you into a great nation, and, uh, and you will be the conduit of my blessing in this world. God makes this beautiful covenant and and, uh, invites Abraham into that. Uh, Abraham, his son Isaac, uh, Isaac, his son Jacob, Jacob and Joseph is is his son who uh, brings their family, now some 70 people, uh, to Egypt. And for many years in Egypt, the Israelites thrived. Right, they they became uh, they they grew in numbers. They gained in their wealth as they worked there in Egypt and the land. But eventually, a new pharaoh had come into power, and he didn't know the Israelites. He didn't know these people. He didn't know of Joseph. And so, the Israelites, growing in number, Egypt feeling threatened by them, are enslaved by the Egyptians for over 400 years. Generation after generation passes, uh, completely missing um, the larger story, caught up in a, a treacherous and terrible situation as they are enslaved there in Egypt. But all the while, God has been working out a plan, and quite intentionally, as we read, we saw that God had been fulfilling a promise to make them into a great nation. So uh, last week, Sarah spoke on um, the early life of Moses, a man uniquely qualified for the calling he'd received, but also distinctly flawed, uh, out wandering in the desert and totally lost. Today, we're going to see a really important piece of this story. I, I had mentioned as we begin it that Exodus is paradigmatic. It s- stands as this paradigm for the way that God works in the world, the mission of God and the way he invites people into it. So some people speak of it as this Exodus pattern, and this is significant. Um, Mission is accomplished by God, that God is on mission to restore his people, Uh, people that had abandoned him when he calls this man Abraham. He says, I will not give up on these people. So God is going to accomplish a mission that will be enacted through his people, the calling of Abraham initially in the text that we'll be reading for the next few weeks, uh, accomplished by Moses and, and Aaron and Miriam and many other people. Um, God's mission is one of deliverance from bondage and into freedom, and people are invited into a lasting covenant relationship 
with God. So this is that pattern that we'll continue to reference throughout. You'll see it play out many times throughout the text today as God calls Moses. He's inviting him into his mission, his plan, right? Uh, God is uh, working to free his people from slavery and invite them back into this covenant relationship that he had promised to them. You'll see this play out throughout Scripture. You'll see the way Exodus alludes to Jesus and salvation and the hope found in him, freedom and covenant relationship with God. And we see it in our lives and our world today. This pattern continues to play out. And that is, for me, why Exodus is such a central book, because it serves as this paradigm in which we understand what God is doing. excuse me, doing in the world. So we're going to begin today in Exodus chapter 3. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he had led the flock to the far side of the wilderness. He came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire and within and within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for this place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Moses had been um, some 40 years uh, here in um, Midian tending the flock for his father-in-law, a man named Jethro. Can you imagine in Moses' story and context, if you were here last week as Sarah spoke about the early part of his life, um, born in a time in which the Pharaoh had decreed that all baby boys must be killed to reduce the population of the Israelites or to prevent it from growing. But Moses had been rescued out of the water, which is what his name means, and brought to live in Pharaoh's home, raised as a grandson to the Pharaoh. He had had all the affluence and all the opportunity in the world, growing up when his people were enslaved, yet he growing up in the house of the Pharaoh, right? And in time, Moses had retaliated against an Egyptian. His people saw what he had done, that he had killed a man in anger. And even his own people reject him. What are you going to do if we don't agree with you? Kill us too, like you did the Egyptian. So Moses has traveled out into the desert, and he finds himself working a hard job in isolation most of his life as he brings his herds out far into the desert, into the wilderness, looking for food and water for them. From the affluence of his youth to now wandering, lost in a desert. And it's there that God appears to him in the form of a burning bush. And I want to pause in this section and and consider something that, that really struck me this week as I was considering our text. As he approaches the bush, God says, take off your sandals because this is holy ground. There's an interesting um, nature to the reverence with which Moses will approach God as he witnesses him, 
right? Take off your sandals. And that was a custom for Israelites and would remain a custom for them, a sign of respect. And you would take off your shoes as you entered a home. And as God, and as Moses approaches a holy God, this posture of reverence is expected and assumed. Uh, God says, uh, this is holy ground. And, and as Moses realizes the power and the awe of the moment, he falls on his face and he hides his face. He falls to his knees and he hides his face in reverence of God. And I got to thinking about our culture. Where does reverence play into our lives and our culture? And I think it's pretty rare in our culture. Am I correct in that? An idea of reverence. I was trying to think of examples of where reverence still exists, this respect for someone or something that is great. And in our, in our schools, we still call our teachers by their last names. I think that's one little vestige of how we have held on to some sort of reverence based on position and authority. Um, we had a family gathering this last week, and uh, often it would be respectful and proper to invite um, the most elderly in the family to, to serve their food first and eat first. And when at our family gathering the other night, we said, Grandma, go ahead and, and get there. She's standing there kind of struggling to stand with her cane. Uh, we said, go ahead and serve your your plate and have a seat. And she said, oh no, let the little kids go first, right? Which is beautiful, which I love that. But it's another one of those pieces where we don't have many uh, little niches of our society that there's a lot of reverence, right? And so for an irreverent people, I, I'm not calling you that, I'm calling me that primarily. For, for an irreverent people, uh, it got me wondering where do we find the ability and the demonstration, the explanation of how it is to come before God with reverence, to hold him high and mighty and to see his power and his honor and his glory very well? I know that in my life, a lot of my prayer time is done while driving or out for a walk, while doing other things, and that's good, and I'd encourage us all to have prayer time like that. But I was considering this week the importance of, like Moses, realizing the presence of God and falling to our knees in awe of a powerful God. Now, naturally, his experience is slightly different than ours on a daily basis. But I wondered what it would look like if in the week ahead we chose to posture ourselves in a way that allowed us to realize God's greatness, his vastness, his awe, and his love, and in reverence, fall to our knees before our Father. Uh, this, this week, one of the things that I'd, I'd encourage to, to try is take five minutes. It doesn't have to be a really long time, uh, but find a quiet place where you can sit alone, or maybe you want to kneel alone, and just say a prayer to God. And I promise you, it will feel awkward. Uh, I promise you it will be uncomfortable. But I think there's something beautiful about a posture that invites us into an experience and a presence. You know, our high churches, our more liturgical churches, are a a lot better than many of us and our experiences are at at posturing themselves in ways that allow them to, to realize God's awe and beauty. And uh, for many of us, 
irreverent people, again, I speak of myself, uh, some of that feels like just going through motions, right? If you're to stand or to kneel during a service or if there's um, some sort of uh, corporate reading or, or, or call and response, and sometimes it feels like just going through the motions, but there's something, uh, should I bring my heart into the right place? There's something beautiful uh, about the posture with which we approach God. All right, I spent a long time on that, and we have a little bit more text to go, so let's keep moving. But, but here's, here's what's, uh, to sum it up. Moses comes into the presence of God. He realizes a powerful and beautiful and awesome God, and he falls to his knees. He takes off his sandals, and he falls to his knee, knees. In verse 7, the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. And I'm concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of this land into a good and spacious land. You remember that pattern we talked about earlier? Uh, God is accomplishing a mission, but enacted through a person. It's a mission of deliverance from bondage. This is that story. God says, I have seen the suffering of my people, and I will respond, and I will rescue them. But in verse 10, he says, so now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Moses calling, go to Egypt and bring my people out. An impossible task that you can only imagine is fear. But The promise of God is that God will rescue his people using a man, as we saw in, um, in the paradigm that we, that we view this through. And I want to ask a question. Why in the world does God choose a man named Moses? Now, naturally, he's uniquely able because he was raised in a Pharaoh's home. So he had some unique training. But Moses is also a murderer. He's also very fearful. He's also in retreat right now in his life, right? He has resigned from any importance and calling and is uh, living an isolated life as a shepherd. Why in the gut world does God choose to call? a man named Moses to be a part of his mission. We'll see later in the, in the text the power of God as he performs miracles and, and does incredible things. And the fact is God could have accomplished freeing his people in any number of ways, right? The power of God is completely sufficient to have caused the Israelites just to vanish in the sight of the Egyptians and walk out of the nation, right? I mean, God could have done anything to accomplish freeing his people from slavery, but he takes this interesting turn, calling a humble, simple man named Moses to be a part of his mission. I think of this a relational God, a triune God. That is a God who we believe uh, is, is Father, Son, and Spirit, right? A God who exists in three parts, but is one is relational in nature. He is the God of love and a God who invites people to participate to significant, meaningful relationship in life. Not a God who desires to operate in isolation, but desires deeply to be near walking in relationship, 
his people in the world. So God calls a man named Moses, and in verse 11 begins the negotiations. This always happens, right? Any big trade in a company, any big move for work, as we consider uh, facilities and staffing, there's always negotiation and conversation to be had. And Moses, as humble and reverent as he may have, may have been a moment ago, he, uh, he, he, he sucks it up and he says, God, I, I got to argue with you on this one. I don't think this is the right plan. In verse 11, Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I'll be with you. And this will be a sign for you, uh, sign to you that it is I that have sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on a mountain, on this mountain, on Horeb. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. Uh, and they ask me, well, what is his name? Then what should I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you say to the, say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. Moses begins his negotiations, his concerns, his debate with God. But God, who am I that you would send me? A very valid question, one that we, we spoke about a minute ago. Who am I that you would send me? Yet God is choosing him. God says, I'll be with you. And Moses says, well, then who are you? Okay, so you're sending me, but I mean, who are you, right? Like, what what do I call you? What do I do? Call call me the great I am. I I mean, the translation is kind of weak. He said, I am. Like, I am everything, right? God says, I am. I exist, and I am everything. That is who is sending you. And we won't read it all, but in chapter 4, if you want to look ahead in your Bibles or read it this week, uh, Moses presents three more arguments. Well, what if they don't listen to me when I say that you send me? What What if they won't listen? So God gives them signs. He gives them a staff, and he says, throw your staff down, and it'll turn to a snake. Put your hand into your cloak, and it will turn leprous. Put it in again, and it will uh, be cleared of that. Um, if you have to, take some water from the Nile and pour it on dry ground, and when you do, it will turn to blood. God says, okay, so here's the signs that will accompany, the power that will accompany the claim that you're making. Uh, in verse 10 of chapter 4, uh, Moses is going to say, but I've never been eloquent. I've never been good at speaking. I can really relate to him in this. Um, and, and, uh, and God says, I'm sending you. Anyway, he says, who gave humans their mouths? He says, I'll help you to speak. And finally, Moses says, just in exhaustion, will you please send someone else? And God, God gets angry at this point, by the way. Uh, but instead of acting in anger, God says, I'm sending your brother Aaron. And he's already on his way. So, so Moses had these five complaints, right? Uh, he speaks, who, who am I to rescue the Israelites? He speaks out of doubt. He says, who are you? I mean, who do I say sent me? And again, his doubt and his concerns begin to crop up. 
He continues, well, what if they don't believe me and fear begins to crop in? What's going to happen to me? What will happen to my reputation as though he has one at this point, right? But uh, those are the fears that we might have. What if they laugh at me, right? All of these things. Uh, He says, uh, I don't speak well. I can't do this. He starts making excuses to support his doubts and his fears. And finally, he resigns saying, would you just send someone else? And God says, is good enough, I'll send someone else, but you're still doing it because I have called you to this task. And so, so listen to this. Uh, the next slide will show, um, li- listen in your own life and your own experience to some of these concerns presented because I think there are many of the things that block us up, both in our Christian li- walks and in our, in our everyday lives, the things that begin to hold us back and slow us down in life, and then listen to the promises of God compared to each one of our doubts, concerns, and fears. Who am I to take on this task? And God says, I'll be with you. And sometimes we ask ourselves, well, God, who are you? Or do I really believe? Or, uh, you know, we ask all these questions and have all these doubts of God. But, you know, who are you? And God says, I am, right? I am who I am. The great I am, the Lord and the God of your fathers. But what if people don't believe me? What if people laugh at me? What if things don't go the way I hope they'll go? And God says, I will perform miracles. Well, God, I don't speak well. I can't do this or I can't do that, so it's not for me. And God says, who gave you your mouth? I'll speak. Trust in me, right? Please, just send someone else. And we often resign in this way, saying, well, someone else is taking care of that problem, right? So I don't really need to concern myself with it. And God says, I am bringing people alongside you to accomplish the things I have called you to. What does calling look like in your life? Some have received a pretty distinct calling and are operating out of that in a a full-time capacity. We have counselor, Christian counselors amongst us. We have life and business coaches operating on Christian principles. Uh, we have people leading nonprofits in our church, uh, both locally and throughout the world in Kenya and places like that. Uh, we have people, uh, you know, full time in their life. They are dedicated to specific calling. But here's the challenge. What about for just an everyday job and life lived, right? Sometimes it feels like, well, since I didn't go into mission work, I guess, you know, I was never called by God. Let me say that's a huge fallacy. That is so wrong that, that we are a called people. In whatever capacity, in whatever way of life we live, uh, from, uh, from our incredible mothers who raise our children full-time, right? To those of us that work in office buildings, uh, those of us that do all sorts of jobs. By the way, when, when I was thinking of people that are acting out their calling, I should have mentioned our teachers, right? Our educators doing a phenomenal job of raising up children. But every one of us, no matter where we're at in life and what we do, I want to say that we are a called people, 
Whether or not we perceive our occupation as our particular calling from God, we are a people who are called to participate in the mission of God. Now, there's many, many passages and many, many places we could go to back that up, but I want to go to the words of Jesus. His words are always my favorite words. And at, at the end, uh, he, has, he has died on a cross. He has risen from the dead. He's appeared to his followers. And in Matthew 28, he says this, It says, then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. By the way, that that Exodus... um, Uh, The Exodus pattern that we talked about earlier plays out in that very passage. Um, uh, The mission of God that Jesus has accomplished, enacted through his people, he's inviting them into this mission of sharing this good news, going to all the world to share Um, the mission from deliverance, which is the story of Christ and his resurrection and people being invited into lasting relationship, discipleship, and opportunity to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. It all plays out in the story of Jesus and in this text. But this is one of those passages in Scripture that says, hey, friends, we are all called. We're all called to participate in the mission of God, whether it's the ways that we raise our children or the ways we operate at our workplace. Maybe it's a full-time calling into some sort of ministry capacity or church planting or whatever it is that God has been laying on your heart. But we are all a called people to be sharing the love of Christ and to be demonstrating it. Now, here's the challenge we will all experience the very same fears, doubts, excuses, and moments of resignation in our lives that Moses did in his calling. I mean, is that not true? When it, when it comes to sharing love and the good news of Jesus with people around us, we will often want to resign and step away. Someone else is doing that. That's a pastor's job, right? Uh, I point to my wife because she's the pastor, you know. It's like someone else is taking care of that, so we don't, we don't have to, right? Um, we'll, we'll often tell ourselves, I'm not capable of accomplishing what you've called me to right? We'll come up with our excuses. We'll question who God is, or we'll question our own ability to engage. And here are the promises of God as we consider and as we close out today with this idea that we are a called people, uh, both to be speaking the, the loving words of Jesus and demonstrating his love in the world around us. When fear crops up, listen again for you, the, the promises of God. God says, I will be with you, I will perform miracles, I will speak through you, and I will send others alongside you. Friends, we are invited, not to an impossible task that we we stand alone at, but we are invited to be demonstrating and sharing the love of a God who promises to walk with us to send others alongside us, who promises to do powerful things to accomplish his mission. We walk alongside a loving God in his mission of love and restoration and hope in this world. So may we rest in this knowledge. 
we are called. We are called into the mission of God. And may this week we seek opportunities, intentionally look for opportunities to speak the loving message of Jesus or to demonstrate his love in the world around us. And when we see those opportunities, may we engage with the confidence that a God who loves us loves them that the God who loves us walks with us, that we are not alone, but we are surrounded by Christians throughout our community desiring to find ways to engage in the loving mission of God. It'll happen this week in our speech, and it will happen in our actions. God is at work in and through you to accomplish his mission. Let's pray about that. Father God, we thank you for this day, for this text, and for this opportunity. Uh, Father, like Moses, I often find myself crippled by uh, fear, or resignation, or doubts. Father, I pray that uh, you will embolden us, that you will allow us to hear, not, not from me, uh, but God, that you will lay on my heart and on our hearts uh, just a burden uh, for your beautiful mission in this world. And Father, thank you that you invite us into that. May we speak in ways that teach people of your love. May we live in ways that show people your love. Father, thank you for your invitation. Give us eyes to see. Give us courage to engage as we can in the week to come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.